Um, last week, maybe it was Monday, I think uh, the, yeah, maybe mo- Monday evening, uh, night of the holiday, <coughs> Adrienne and I decided to rent the movie Noah. Um, we just thought, well, you know, we're in, the, we're in the throes of it. We're in the center of things right now in the biblical story. Um, we ought to take a look at it and just see um, if we can sit down and digest it and see uh, Hollywood's take on Noah. I don't know if you've seen the movie or not. Um, a number of people seem to indicate uh, that they have. Um, it, it, was, it was interesting, uh, to say the least. Uh, it was hard once it got to a weird, uh, dark place. It was hard to receive as just a film because you knew the story. So it's like, you know, you, if it was totally unrelated from something you knew and you believed upon and you cared about, then you could maybe find a way to enjoy the film, maybe. But you can't, at least I couldn't, because I was so wed to the biblical story that it bothered me and I couldn't get past just watching it as a movie. Um, the interesting piece, I, I thought at the beginning, and I'm no movie critic by any means, so take it or leave it, but I, I did think what was interesting at the opening of the movie... Um, the, the Watchers, there, there's this group of, of, of fallen angels. That they're called the Watchers in the movie. And um, the interesting interpretation about that was just the sense that uh, the, they, they, uh, they explain themselves to Noah, I think. If I can remember correctly, it's Noah who they're talking to or, or, or one of his sons or something. And they're explaining themselves from the standpoint of they were ministering spirits sent to care for, and they didn't use the term minister, they use a term like watch over or whatever, the, 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 the sons of man. Uh, they were created, and, and the creator created them, and they were sent to watch over them, and then they rebelled against the creator, and they were encased in clay um, to share in the clay of mankind. The sense of man was taken from the earth, and these beautiful, majestic beings sent to watch over them, failed them by rebelling against God, and then were at that time encased in clay and stone. Um, and so at the end, they fight uh, Cain's offspring, Tubal Cain. Those people trying to get on the ark, they wage war against them and earn their wings and find their way back. They, they like explode and then shoot off into the sky for having sacrificed in the battle against Cain. Uh, the interesting piece, um, I, I thought that was interesting, that they kind of interpreted that, yeah, what were angels for originally? How would we understand angels at the beginning and in, in, in the Genesis story? That they were ministering to humankind. They were sent to watch over or minister to, which I, I take that same interpretation. Not that they're the watchers and that they got encased in clay, just to be careful. But, but that they, they were sent to minister, to, to be ministering spirits. As we find stated in Hebrews 1 regarding the angels' role in the life of Christ as they ministered him in the way that they minister to us as well. Um, and then it got weird. Um, Noah made it onto the boat, as you would guess. Uh, he made it on, and then uh, he was go- his sons didn't get wives, which is, again, a unique feature. They didn't get wives. And then one of them ended up with a wife and ended up pregnant, and Noah was going to kill the baby. So the entire movie becomes about Noah killing this child um, because the child was going to bring the sin of the old world into the new world, and Noah couldn't have it. So then Noah rebels against God because he says, I, I won't do it, because he felt God was calling him to kill this baby, and he rebels against God. And then ends his life kind of in a drunken stupor on the beach and somewhere restores to his wife. So it was an interesting uh, conclusion to the biblical story of Noah. I, I wouldn't you know, recommend it for biblical wisdom. It didn't shortcut my week on prep, which I was hoping. Um, but it, but it, didn't, it didn't do that. I, I don't think it would. Um, but... There you go. The, the movie Noah, it's out there. Um, the other piece, though, is where we're actually at in the biblical story of which we really do care about. 
Um, where are we at in understanding uh, God's movement in the story of Noah? And that is where what has been read for you this morning is that the big takeaway to this point is the year, uh, the 120-year period of God's patience has ended. And again, I'm drawing, we know, I'm saying that we knew that it was a 120-year period of patience within that time constraint, not for the entire 120 years, but within that time constraint, somewhere to the realm of between 55 to 75 years, Noah was at work building the ark. But the the entire period of patience is um, stated for you in verse 3 of chapter 6. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Years And that 120-year mark is the day beginning of God's patience toward mankind. And then therein he makes this covenant call to Noah, enters into covenant relations with the man who is blameless, and Noah begins his mission of building the ark in obedience. So once again, I, I, I think we, we've covered this a little bit before, but if we were to assume there are no gaps in the genealogical record, I think many of us in here would like to some of us more than others, but just for the sake of argument, I do think it's a feature of this text that's noteworthy, is that if we do assume that there are no gaps in the genealogical numbers, so we'd go back to like Noah's 600th year, you saw there in verse 6, is giving us a time stamp. And we go from there back to chapter 5, and we break down some of the mathematical numbers and the age and the dying and the living and so forth. It's worth remembering that the year of Noah's 600th year, the year of the deluge, is also the same year of Methuselah's death. That's noteworthy. Interestingly enough, the uh, movie Noah captures this. Uh, I thought that was very interesting that they had a role for Methuselah in the film. Um, and I think it was, it was weird. I couldn't really enjoy it either because Methuselah, I think, is the guy who plays Hannibal Hector. Uh, and so it was like, oh, I just can't get past that, that Hopkins guy. Uh, anyway, that was Methuselah. So it was like, oh, I can't interpret you as Methuselah at this moment. It's too hard for me. Because um, he's Noah's grandfather. And uh, you remember, if you look at the etymology of his name and you take Methuselah and you break it down, and, 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 and it, it, um, if you break it down, maybe so, but a lot of people uh, seem to uh, go along with the idea that Methuselah's name, etymologically speaking, is broken down into tip of the spear, almost named so uh, prophetically from Enoch, his godly father. If we put all of that together, um, it seems that Noah would have witnessed his grandfather's passing just prior to the deluge. In the film, um, uh, Methuselah is uh, at the, on his knees, and he's holding up, and he, I, he's, he, it's a weird thing. He's looking for berries, and he finds this berry that he's been really wanting to find for a long time. And he, he, he plucks this berry, and he's just so thankful for it, and he's holding it up, and just so happy to have found it, and this huge ocean wave just wipes him out. Um, that's his final moment. Um, but I, I think the biblical text seems to indicate that he would have died prior to, not in, the deluge. But why? I, I think the inference that we need to draw from that, and it is an inference, we don't have it stated very clearly, but I think that it's a fair and rightful inference for us to make, is the fact that Methuselah did not share in the fate of everyone else. That is, his, he, he died and then the deluge. Not 
he died the year of as he was swept away by the deluge. But the inference we're to draw from that is most likely that I think it implies that Methuselah was a believer. Why is that noteworthy to think of Noah witnessing his grandfather passing just prior to the deluge? It's not just for simple sentimentality to shed a tear or to have a hallmark moment. But again, I think it helps us still nonetheless digest the emotional complexity that Noah was enduring when he was delivered from wrath. You see, Noah was not narcissistic or disordered. We know that because we have a description of Noah as a righteous and blameless individual. So if we put like narcissistic categories back on Noah as we read back into the text, that man, wasn't he just so happy as he boarded the ark and everybody perished? It would be extremely unfair to the portrait of Noah who loved God and neighbor, the two tablets of the law. Because how would we qualify that he's blameless or that he is godly or that he is righteous in relationship to God's law, to love God and to love neighbor? You see, he didn't lack. It would be very unfair of us, uncharitable to read and disobedient, I think, from the standpoint of what we do know of Noah, to assume that Noah lacked emotional interest or empathy for those he had known his entire life. Sure, in the portrait of Noah, he is, without a doubt, a bold preacher of righteousness. He despised, without a doubt, the sin and wickedness of his fellow men. I mean, when, 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 when the world is pervasively wicked, and perhaps in its greatest manifestations of depravity, so that how would we qualify um, the depravity of mankind at this time? I, I think it must have been extremely explicit. We have a lot of wickedness now. Um, And it's hard to say, is this worse than that or that worse than this? What I think is taking place in in that period is extreme, explicit wickedness of which a righteous man and a blameless man such as Noah, a preacher of righteousness, despised. But he nonetheless surely loved many of his kinsmen. Notice the statement of verse 16. I I think that that's important to grasp on multiple levels of what this means. But here is Noah experiencing the deluge in verse 16. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Interestingly, I think on on one level, sure, the shutting of the door by the hand of the Lord, or really just the the sealing up of the ark altogether by the hand of the Lord, is a sense uh, of miracle. Um, It it would probably be naive of us to assume that when Noah went down the timbers and applied pitch as he was instructed, that he did so infallibly, that, that there was no leak, that there was zero, it was absolutely hermetically sealed where it should be, completely uh, able to withstand all of the ocean's tide and the great rivers that fell from the sky would probably be naive. I, I, I think, realistically, uh, God uses means, but he is not bound by them. I think he, he mirac- miraculously kept Noah's boat going in a manner of 
interacting providentially and miraculously with the elements of both the water and the wood. The Lord preserved Noah and his family, not only by giving them a vessel, but with his hand upon that vessel of blessing. But you see, as Noah experienced being shut in, that also meant that his kinsmen were shut out. Definitively so. In the, the film, uh, Two Ball Came, uh, he, he runs across and there's a great huge battle between the watchers and the, the offspring of Cain. And Two Ball Cain makes his way sneakily by over to the side of the boat while the battle's taking place in the front to see who's getting on, who's getting off. He's over there beating into the side of the ark and then he sneaks into the side of the ark. That doesn't happen actually. We have a definitive statement here in the text that, that eliminates that from even being a possibility. God entered into covenant with Noah and his offspring after him. And that is the boundary marker of life in Christ or life outside of it. The Lord shut him in. And we have other statements in scripture that we should be mindful of that explain the Lord's act here of shutting in Noah and his family. And that is, we have statements in the New Testament that speak of this. The goats and the sheep were separated. Or we go to Luke, where we have, trouble, uh, we have traveled the last couple of years, um, and, and we saw this great statement where Lazarus and the rich man, and we have this same sense of the Lord shuts some in, and thereby shuts others out. That's what we see with Noah. That is what we see through the gospel. You see, our Lord speaks this. The great gulf was fixed. You remember Lazarus and the rich man. The statement of the text goes on to say, quote, so that they which would pass from here to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from there. It's literally impossible. The great chasm is fixed. The door of mercy was shut. Then our Lord declares also, it would be wise for us to remember in our own lives, he who opens and no man shuts, he who shuts and no man opens. He has shut Noah in from the wicked and profane. And Noah knew it. Calvin, uh, commenting on this dynamic and the emotions of Noah at the time, says this, he says, Yet looking out, he saw a large number of his cousins, nephews, and nieces on earth, So when Noah saw such terrible confusion fall on not two or three of his kin, but on an entire lineage and the whole human race, he experienced great anguish. I think it's important to note, because I think it's 
emotionally where many of us live. That as pilgrims on the way, this life and our journey is mixed emotionally. It will never be perfect. That is to say, to explain our own experience emotionally and psychologically and spiritually with redemption, we rejoice truly um, as we gather on this Lord's Day, as we celebrate this table, as we sing the songs of his people, as we confess our Catholic faith. We rejoice truly in God's mercy and his grace that has been shown to us in Christ. And that's genuine and real just as Noah standing in that ark was thankful to have been on it. But with it, we are also saddened, regretful, and even anxious over those we know and even love that remain outside the ark of God's salvation. We mustn't think Noah any different. Just as in the days of Noah, so also with us. Though they be close to us and people we love, if they refuse God's warnings and reject his provision of grace, they will be swept away into a gruesome end. Will you turn with me to Hebrews um, in the New Testament? I want to read a text at length because it's not just those out there or the others that we might think of in relation to these warnings. But it is also perhaps at those who are in here that need to be warned Lest we move through the Noah story and we always have an idea of those who perish are always hard to define, those outside, when the church must once again be reminded of her own. Notice how the writer speaks with a sense of urgency. And I want you, I'm going to read the text of Hebrews 3, and I'm going to begin at verse 7. Um, and I, and I, I want you to, to read it and, and hear it read in, in light of Noah and the, the, the 55 to 75 years of his building an ark, deforesting project. Right, because he was an object of derision and mockery. And there's always this temptation with the free offer of the gospel to delay repentance and receiving because we assume wrongly that life will just keep going on tomorrow like it is today. There's a very powerful parallelism that needs to be acknowledged between those of Noah's day and those of our own. So in light of that, hear this exhortation from the Apostle in Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. 
on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is written today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You see, the exhortation between the writer of Hebrews and the narratival text of Noah and the flood is the same. It is that today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart and think, I heard it today but I'll wait till tomorrow. That is a pathology of those who never enter the rest. Why? Because your death is unpredictable to you. Our own human experience says that it is predictable to us. Again, we all have plans this week. As I say, you know, it's everyone, it, what are you doing tomorrow? It's a, it's a, it's a standard uh, shared moment where we all talk here at church and just get to know each other and just kind of share with one another. And we say, well, what do you got planned for? Or at least I do. Everyone who's talked to me after church knows that's what I'm going to say to them. What do you have planned for after church? What do you have planned for this evening? What do you have planned for? Right, and then you'll be like, well, this is what I got planned. Because we all have plans. But we never factor into that that death may be eminent and eliminate my plans. What ought I do? I ought to live through faith. Because the deluge could come at any moment. And I'll be swept away. 
For those of us as we live this pilgrim's journey that is mixed with emotion, again, thankful for the grace we received in Christ, but saddened and regretful and even anxious over those that we love who are not in this ark of salvation, what must we do? I would share, I think many of you, as I've talked with you and you with me, that many of us here have people that are either in our immediate family which we care a lot by uh, place and time and, and, and blood sharing, DNA sharing. We care uh, uh, deeply for those in our own household and then those beyond our own household as we care for friends that are meaningful to us and relationships that are genuine. That what must we do for those relations, that relationship? What can we do in this sense of here we are, thankful to be in the ark of salvation as we look on and the deluge begins to gather? We're thankful to be in this ark of salvation, but we're regretful and anxious for those as we look upon them and we see the deluge slowly filling underneath their feet. What must we do for them? You know what I know. It's not a secret formula. We just need to be diligent. We must take every opportunity that they'll give us. And I think we need to exercise wisdom in what is an opportunity. But I think in wisdom, it shouldn't be an excuse for lackadaisicalness, for slothfulness. Recognize diligently as we seek opportunity to speak with them about the deluge. And perhaps most of all, which tends to be some of, sometimes the least of all, we must pray for them. As one author noted the text this way, he said, quote, the heart that is heavy with the knowledge that someone we love is outside the ark is a heart that aches with the burden of Christ, who said himself with great tears, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Noah was a man of faith, blameless in character, righteous in conduct, and empathy and love toward neighbor. But notice the devastation that man cannot avoid. The water begins to burst forth. Look at verse 11 and 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, again, perhaps this is the springtime. And we covered that last time we were together. On the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened. The rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Here, the sources of the water are made explicit. Where did the water come from? How much can, from where can we get so much water that it would cover the entire earth. And here the biblical text seems to isolate two sources from where the water came uncontrollably. As you notice there, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Excuse me, there's an article uh, published in the magazine entitled Science. And, And the title of the article is Huge Underground Ocean Discovered Towards the Earth's Core. Let me read it for you just for a moment. Because think about the biblical text. We were just told uh, um, that the the great depths burst forth. A new study led by geophysicist Steve Jacobson 
of Northwestern University and a seismologist, Brandon Schmant, from the University of New Mexico, has yielded evidence that vast oceans worth of water are tied up within the Earth's mantle. The results were published in Science. 400 miles beneath North America, Schmant and Jacobson found deep pockets of magma. Again, I, I can't scientifically uh, explain all of this to you, so you just do with it what you will. Catch the high points. Pockets of magma, which indicates the presence of water. However, this isn't water in any of the three forms which we are familiar with. The pressure coupled with the high temperatures forces the water to split into hydroxyl radical which is then able to combine with the minerals on a molecular level. This water, which is bound up in rock, could indicate the largest water reservoir on the planet. It is believed that plate tectonics cycle the water in and out, and the water affects the partial melting of the rock in the mantle. Final paragraph. Geological processes on the Earth's surface, such as earthquakes or erupting volcanoes, are simply an expression of what is going on inside the earth out of our sight. Said Jacobson, quote, I think we are finally seeing evidence for a whole earth water cycle, which may help explain the vast amount of liquid water on the surface of our habitable planet. Scientists have been looking for this missing deep water for decades. So to the biblical text, the sources of the water are made explicit here in the text that water gushed uncontrollably from wells and springs which draw from a great subterranean ocean here in the text labeled the Great Deep. And secondly, from unrestrained downpours from the sky, the duration of which last 40 days and 40 nights. One interpreter of the text says that the rains that fell are more reflective of rivers that flowed. You see, think about rivers that run. We've seen a lot of this flooding recently. If you've been watching the news with the storms that have been coming from the Midwest and kind of came over here last evening. The water that begins to run is uncontrollable and amazing. Think about those rivers that are taking over towns, falling at once from the sky. The point of verses 11 and 12 is that water is coming. The water is coming against mankind because God's hand of wrath is bent against him. And the water will be triumphant. Look at the text with me to see the commentary on the water. Look at verses 17 through 20. I'm just going to hit the high points. Verse 17, notice the flood continued. But I want you to zero in on what Moses wants us to see. What he's really gathering for our sense. And we'll summarize it here in a moment. But just look at the language. It's stunning. Verse 17. The waters 
increased. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly. Verse 19, the waters prevailed mightily. Verse 20, the waters prevailed. To read in the text once again, the flood continued 40 days, the water increased. But what say you of the water? It prevailed. But what do you mean by it? It prevailed mightily. What do you mean? The waters prevailed. But what is the response to this water? So it prevailed, it prevailed mightily. What is the response on earth to such water? Verse 21. All flesh died. Verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostril was the breath of life died. Everything died. Verse 23, blotted out every living thing. The end of verse 23, all things were blotted out from the earth. You see, Noah is instructing us through repetition, very purposely so, that the water begins to flow in verse 11 and 12, and it increases until it absolutely, without a doubt, prevails over all mankind. And the text then speaks of man's response, his feebleness of nature. He can do nothing but die. Herein we are instructed in two truths that I hope you grasp as we would think on them. Two truths regarding the day of God's judgment that is application to us as well as we think of today. Today, please, today. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. We have two aspects of judgment that we need to take note of in this text that applies to our moment today. And that is, number one, in the day of God's judgment, whether it be this day with Noah or the day in the future with Christ or your day of judgment, in that day, in the day of God's judgment, there is clearly being taught here by Moses to us for our admonition and warning. There is no place of refuge for the faithless. We noted this uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's very true, actually. Reading the text of what Moses just said, and they died, and they died. Everybody died. Everything died. What happened? Everything that had breath died. Means no one saves themselves by swimming. No one. There was no dinghy tied to Noah's boat. There were not patches that the water didn't cover over. There's no small bits of resistance where man might prevail against the arm of the Lord. Though he may think it, according to Psalm 2, he will never achieve it, as demonstrated in Noah. You're either in the ark or you're not. There is no place of refuge for the faithless. Secondly, in that day of judgment, opportunity for resistance is past. So also with it, opportunity for repentance is also past. It is simply 
too late. You see, when the Lord appears, if you read the New Testament and you look at the Lord's appearing in apocalyptic texts about the Lord's return, there is no one who gets a second chance. There is no one who sees and then says, oh, I get it. Now that makes sense to me. Hey, I want to make it right. No one receives that awakening. They're, aw they're awakened to terror. It's too late. The offer of the free gospel was held out to you, and today you heard his voice and you resisted as in rebellion. So also here, when the deluge fell, there was no opportunity to be found for repentance, though they sought it with tears. You see, those who thought Noah's project a fable and Noah himself a stupid man were destroyed, interestingly, over a period of 40 days and 40 nights. Think about that just for a moment. I'm concluding with you now as we move toward conclusion. Why 40 days and 40 nights? Have you thought of that? Why the strike of time? Why not just destroy them right away? Why are we waiting for 40 days and 40 nights? It's hard to know for sure definitively why 40 days and 40 nights, but I think we're on to something to suggest it's because if God had immediately destroyed all mankind the same day, so it was, he could destroy them in a number of different ways, and he could have done it all in but a moment. He would have achieved a certain end, no doubt. All men would have perished. True, right? No one debates. Gone. And he achieved the end. All men perished. But they would have perished without any understanding of God's judgment that fell upon them. You see, one author concludes, I think, well, and I would share it with you and commend it to you, is mentioning the fall of 40 days this way. They had to realize that God had spoken seriously. Today, if you hear his voice. They had to realize that God had spoken seriously. And in judgment, they were compelled to say, Oh, the God we scorned is showing that he is our judge and that his hand is too mighty for us. He was not the kind of master to joke about. For us, the door of mercy and the free offer of the gospel to the ark of your salvation remains open. The preaching of the word is going forward to you right now as we've recited from Hebrews 10, or Romans 10. The door remains open. That's why the preaching says, today if you hear his voice, enter in. Enter in today. The door to the ark is opened. The free offer of the gospel goes forth. The exhortation is obvious. Enter therein through faith. So our Lord says this in close. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Let us pray. Father God, we praise you for this type that we read about in the scriptures with Noah.
that we see the call 